This week on the Eldritch Lawcast, we're talking to the Dungeon Dudes about their new 5e module, The Dungeons of Drakenheim. All that and more coming up right now. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, your favourite D&D and tabletop role-playing game podcast. My name is Ben Byrne. Hello humans, my name is Dale Kingsmill. I am Monty Martin. And I'm Kelly McLaughlin. And we, we are, are the Dungeon, the Dungeon Dudes. Dudes. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for indulging me on that one, the two of you, uh, and Dale as well. But also, okay. thank you for joining us. Regular viewers, uh, obviously wondering, Sean and James have, have changed shape mysteriously. Not quite. <laughs> we have uh, let them have a week off, and we are here with Monty and Kelly well, from the Dungeon Dudes. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever seen... Sean and James and the Dungeon Dudes in the same room. Mm. Have we have we had a show with not well obviously no. I, I don't think those two have come up to Canada yet so uh. <laughs> you're on to us you're on to the secrets <laughs> the, the the Canadian counterparts yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Monty let me ask you a quick question if you were to escape into any fantasy or sci-fi realm that you could what do you think you would want to escape into where would you want to go if you could live there for a year uh i think probably the best science fiction fantasy world to live in if you're actually going to live there would probably be star trek yeah i feel like i i feel like that's where like you could actually live because it's a very optimistic setting Right. Mm. Like it's not like, well, there are existential threats and all sorts of dangers. It's also like a world where you can explore and have wacky adventures. And and I feel like for the typical person, like living life, like you could go on some great vacations. You could see some amazing places. You could probably eat some really good food. And there, it's not a universe where all of us where where well, it is a universe where all of a sudden a monster is going to come out and kill you. But I feel like that's only if you're in Starfleet. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, it's like joining the military, right? Like, you're, yeah, you're yeah. invariably in more danger in that situation. Uh, but, but you know, you can go to you can go to Picard's Vineyard and just chill out, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dale, what about you? Where would you go? Which which universe would you want to escape into? My gut instinct is Narnia. I've loved the Narnia book since I was a little kid, and I feel like it's it's got kind of a similar balance of like there's enough drama going on that is going to stay interesting, mm. but also uh, for the most part, it's it's pretty chill, and I can just hang out with some talking animals if That's I don't totally want to die. The the talking animals <laughs> are definitely a bonus there. Kelly, what about you? Fantasy, sci-fi? Do you have a preference? Where would you want to live? Well, I'm going to answer your question with another question. In my escape to this fantasy world, am I a heroic character or am I an NPC? Because I think in the answer that Monty gave, this is like, if you're a regular person in Star Trek, yeah, like my go-to answer would be to escape to Star Wars. But if I escape to the, the worlds of Star Wars, I want to be like a Padawan in the Jedi Academy, preferably during the era pre like the Sith takeover and the destruction of the Jedi order and all of that. Like, like during the prime time where you could go to school to be a Jedi and like help people around the world with your Jedi powers. Great. But if I'm going in there and I'm like a moisture farmer on Tatooine, that's not really going to be the greatest time. So it does depend on that for me. But if I could be a Jedi in star Wars, that's like my childhood dream come true. And I would live that life. 
What about you know, what, the, Sorry, go ahead, Monty. The the other like I think S tier like just be an NPC is probably the Shire. Yeah, oh, yeah eat cheese, smoke pipe weed. <laughs> oh, yes, go to so many Hobbit parties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. I, you're right. You're right. If I could again, not do, yeah. If I could escape to Lord of the Rings, but not during the War of the One Ring, and just live yeah. a happy life in the Shire, that would be great. I think you're right. I, I would say I would never have thought of Star Trek because I'm not a huge Star Trek fan myself. And in fact, a lot of the media I'm into is like dark fantasy. All the worlds kind of suck. I'm like, I don't really yeah. want to go to any of these places. But the Shire, I actually think that's a really good call. I, I would probably also want to go there. Speaking of a world that I would not want to escape into, if I'm being uh, completely honest, is the world of Drakenheim, which is uh, the, the the brainchild, I believe, of Monty Martin uh, and Kelly McLaughlin. You are a player uh, within the world or have been a player within the world or are a player, still are, past tense, present tense. I'm not sure yet because gods know it would be past tense for me. I would not survive this place. Um, Dungeons of Drakenheim is the point that I'm getting to. Just so everybody knows, while I feel very special to have this, this is just an alpha version. It is not uh, in yep. any way a final product. Um, ooh, ooh, let's let's all show our our Draconite yeah. dungeons. Um, that being said, I have been flicking through this, and it is my jam, like massively so. I mentioned a second ago. I'm hugely into dark fantasy um, and that whole kind of, you know, hard decision making. The world sucks because it's, I don't know, something about it really scratches my my brain in a, in a positive way. Um, that was a weird sentence. Anyway, the question that I'm building to, Monty, is how, give me the elevator pitch for, for Drakenheim. If I'm someone who's never watched uh, one of your streams or, uh, you know, just see this book and I'm like, that looks super cool. I want to know what that is. What is the Dungeons of Drakenheim or what are the Dungeons of Drakenheim? Yeah, so Dungeons of Drakenheim is a dark fantasy adventure set in a ruined city caught between eldritch horror and faction conflict and it is all bound together by the personal stories of the player characters who will ultimately decide the fate of drakenheim so we really in building drakenheim we wanted to combine a world where the player characters felt like they could be the movers and shakers in it in a really profound way uh, and have that personal story but also cast that against a world of conflicts and inscrutable maddening horror mm. um and and so it, it's very much for for me it's a it's a world of really deep contrasts in in that respect because i think that um one of the things that i love about uh cosmic horror so specifically is that it really magnifies the um, the kind of the existential dread of the human condition. And for us pairing that horror with the decision making of um, of a faction based conflict where the player characters are in control of what's going to happen next really for, uh, highlights how, you know, in in a in a cosmic horror sort of way, it's left to the human protagonists to figure out what to do in the face of horrible truths about reality and mm. impending madness. So mm. that is the elevator pitch. Uh, in terms of the story, though, Kelly, do you want to say like what is the story of Drakenheim? 
Um, well, the story of Drakenheim is about, it's about a city that was struck by an eldritch meteor uh, 15 years prior to the outset of the campaign. And Drakenheim itself, the city, is was the capital of Westmar. So it, it had a very important role in the continent. The royal family known as the Von Kessels were the leaders of the entire continent and kind of held it together. But with the meteor crashing down on the city, the kingdom was shattered, the uh, royal heirs were lost, and uh, what came afterwards was a long civil war between people trying to claim a throne that was crumbling under the weight of this eldritch horror spread by this mysterious meteor. And what ends up happening is after several attempts to reclaim the city that didn't go well because of all the monsters and madness inhabiting the horrible ruins, uh, your characters now arrive at Drakenheim for their own go goals. And one of the systems that we built into the book is the personal goal system. So each player character chooses a personal quest that is uh, driving them to stay and uh you know, push forward in the ruins of Drakenheim. But along the way, they meet several groups of people who are also battling for control over the city. And through their adventures and the NPCs that they interact with, they get to choose who their allies are going to be and who their enemies are going to be while they traverse the dangerous ruins, trying to figure out what is to be done with delirium, the mysterious uh, crystals left behind by the meteor, and what to do with the royal line and the throne of Drakenheim. There's powerful magic in Drakenheim now because the delirium has brought new forms of magic and unlocked new types of spells and magic items that can be created. So many adventurers come to the city seeking it to make their fortunes and the factions all have we've developed five factions and all of them have a different opinion on whether the delirium should be used for magic items, whether it should be worshipped as a harbinger of a, of a divine prophecy, or whether it should just be destroyed. And some of the factions, they don't know yet. Uh, they, they just want to piece together the ruins. So there's a, a kind of this multifaceted decision making and it, Ultimately, it falls on the players to decide who's going to be the villain of the campaign. And depending on some of the choices, uh, some players might feel like ours did and be looking at themselves going, are we the villains? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of D&D campaigns, to be fair. We've yeah. definitely had that moment where the players all look at each other and they're like, uh-oh. Um, <laughs> this is, like, super layered as well. Like, the more you, yeah. you talk about it, um, you know, th this is a world with, like, massive fidelity, which I think is really cool. You know, if you're looking uh, for a game to pick up, a campaign to pick up that's, you know, multi-layered and you can kind of dive really deeply into and mine mm. it really deeply, um, Drakenheim sounds really awesome. What I'm kind of curious about is that... Like, did you design this as a product first and foremost? Or this came off your stream. Was this like a world that you had been playing within just, you know, behind closed doors and it had slowly developed over time? It was a world that um, when 
as, as we were starting to build a following on YouTube, we started hearing from more and more people that were watching our channel. We want to watch you guys play D&D. Right. And originally, we kind of, we had a bunch of ideas of where we would go from it, whether we were going to just run the official modules uh, for 4th edition, whether we were, were going to come up with something new. Um, but I'd had this idea in my back pocket for a while, and originally it kind of started, like, part of the reason why I, I chose it was like, I'm not precious about this, you know, if it doesn't go well, I'm not going to be brokenhearted. Um, if no one likes it, I won't be depressed about it. It'll be really open-ended. We'll be able to see where it goes and we can kind of do it in an episodic format because yeah. fundamentally what's, what's cool about the way the book turned out is that if you just wanted to take the locations in the city and use them for one shots, it's really easy to do that. Uh, but then if you do want to layer on top of all the conflict and intrigue on, on top of that, all the guidelines are there there for it as well. So it really wasn't until about, f I, I would say towards the end of the first season of the show, which is 52 episodes, that was really when we were starting to hear the loud clamoring from people that were just leaving comments on the, on the episodes of like, is this a book or can we get Monty's DM notes? <laughs> mm. And, and that's where it really took off. And, and the idea germinated that, Oh yeah, maybe we should compile all this and make this into something that we can share in a, in a new way for others to experience. Yeah, there's like a, I call it the action figure effect, right? With, you know, just based on my own personal experience, which is when I was a little kid, I used to watch Batman the Animated Series and I wanted Batman action figures to create my own, you know, like Batman stories. And I think that there's a lot of power in, in you know, you see, you know, even as an adult, you see something that you like, that you connect with and you want the, the action figure or a version of that thing that you can kind of take and explore your own at your own pace, you know, as mm -hmm. you were playing through the campaign, obviously decisions were made by the party and I have no doubt that so many people were sitting there going like what would I do what character would I create for for Drakenheim mm -hmm. and um, this obviously gives them that opportunity the thing that I really enjoy I was flicking through it the first thing I always do when I pick up any adventure module whether it's like a Wizards of the Coast official module or, or something else is flick to the back and look at the monsters um, as a dungeon master, that's always what I want to do first. There are some really cool things back there, but actually what I want to talk about because it it, it took my fancy or, or, or it caught my attention as I was looking through the back of the book is the contamination rules. You you mentioned delirium um, as this stone, this this magical um, you know object that that contaminates and corrupts anybody who comes in contact with it or it and correct me if i get any any of this wrong it kind of like gives off a haze that even like being near it uh can cause <laughs> you to become contaminated uh can you walk me through a little bit of the contamination rules um and i don't know how you how how you came up with them how you found it affected your campaign during the yeah. stream because they're like they're such a uh, a delicious um, extra layer on a campaign. Like for me, the contamination status is Drakenheim. Like that's really what sets it apart um, from anything else. Mm. Yeah. So Kelly, what what you you've experienced it as a player? Tell us about <laughs> how horrible was it? Like on a scale uh, of one to this sucks. Like so, my favorite thing about contamination is. Um, that so Monty and I are very much in the mindset that like 
uh, killing player characters sometimes sucks. And, mm-hmm. you know, death is kind of hard in fifth edition sometimes, although maybe not in Drakenheim. But we wanted something that added to the fear and horror of a campaign setting, which is hard to do in fifth edition because you're playing epic fantasy. Mm-hmm. So what the can- contamination rules really do, and I have experienced this as a player, is this constant feeling of dread when you're in an area where you know you can be contaminated the contamination system we borrowed ideas from the exhaustion system Mm. so there's six levels of contamination and the first level of contamination doesn't have any negative effects but each time you gain a level of contamination you roll a d6 and if you roll your number of contamination levels or lower you get a mutation and then you roll on the mutation chart to see what you get. Some are beneficial, some are detrimental, but we very much took all of our favorite ideas from like cosmic horror and movies like The Thing or the works of H.P. Lovecraft to really explore what the body mutations might look and feel like. So there's elements of body horror in there as well. Um, But as a player, each time that Monty makes us check for contamination you get that first level and maybe you do get a mutation and it's something like you can squeeze through small holes or you can breathe underwater Mm. and you're like oh you know that's not too bad but then next thing you know you have two levels three levels four levels and suddenly the mutations start to change um i don't want to give away too many spoilers uh, on our show but there was a recent instance where one of our player characters ended up with five levels of contamination and four different mutations. And it was horrifying to see happen at the table. They were no longer really themselves. They were a walking fish spider with a belly maw that was (laughs) chasing after us to kill us. Oh no. And uh, yeah, it was, it was terrifying. And if he had gained one more level of contamination, what happens at level six is you transform into a monster at the DM's discretion. So the DM gets to choose what you transform into. There are some ways to reverse it, but those are extremely difficult Mm. and require sort of its own adventure within Drakenheim to find out how to reverse a monstrous transformation. So getting to level six is almost as good as dead. And now (laughs) you have a monster companion that you have to deal with if you want to try to save them. Yeah, for sure. What makes contamination really challenging is that unlike exhaustion, it doesn't go away when you rest. Um, And we were very specific in in that contamination under the rules of 5th edition is neither a poison, nor a disease, nor a curse. And so the existing magic that affects that player characters would normally use to overcome such things, contamination is completely alien. So in Drakenheim, we've created a set of new spells that the player characters can unlock to protect them against contamination. The first one of which is a spell that does purge all your contamination out, but it trades the contamination levels for exhaustion. Mm. Um, so it it becomes, it's a problem that the the, one of the things that we were very inspired by in creating Drakenheim is a lot of the sort of Castlevania slash Metroid sorts of games where the player characters have to unlock a new ability or a new attribute in order to survive in a new environment. 
Mm. So the content, so the way the the spells that and magic items that protect the player characters against contamination are designed is so that as the players find these spells and research them and build these magic items, they're able to explore the more most dangerous areas of Drakenheim without being immediately overwhelmed by the contamination. Then the only problem they have to deal with is the scary monsters. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's something it it it, it is. Um, that exploration focus is something we were really interested in achieving with the contamination as well, um, because the 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 other big effect that it does is the haze that covers Drakenheim that causes all the wild magic. Its basic property is you can't take a long rest in the haze. Gotcha. It, so every adventure begins with the player characters going into Drakenheim and coming out. So that has a huge effect just on the whole structure of the adventure in that um, we kind of avoid that whole thing where the players go use all their spells on the first encounter in the dungeon and then rest outside because if you want to get into explore Drakenheim, you have to fight your way through the city streets, mm. achieve your objectives and then get out. Mm. And uh, one of the things we wrote in our random encounter system is that one day in your campaign, your player characters will have a moment where they've expended all their resources. They're low on hit points and they're stuck in the middle of the city. Mm. The first time this happens, you should be merciful. The second time this happens, show no mercy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the when you pointed out that it's not a poison or a disease, I was like, yeah, no, it's not. I just think it's it's incredibly cleverly designed. Um, and there's something about the exhaustion mechanics in base 5th edition that just kind of don't work for me in terms of, like, what they're meant to represent. I think it's because they... They're a little too debilitating in a weird way and players often, once yeah. they gain a level or two of exhaustion, kind of disengage from the game and start sitting at the back and letting the rest of the party do the heavy lifting. Mm. What I like about the contamination uh, from a design point of view is that it takes that, evolves that idea, um, twists it, if you will, um, and it just... it. it, it gives buffs, like you said, as well as debuffs, but also uh, enforces uh, role-playing changes as well. You know, mm -hmm. the, the the way the character is role-played has to change. It reminds me of a warlock I had in a campaign a while ago that had a great old one as a pact. And the idea was that the god is, like, forcing their energy through a mortal body which just physically cannot sustain such magic and power. And so he was changing um, slowly over the course of the campaign. And we had no mechanics for it. Like, the the contamination system would, would have been perfect for it. It was just every time he cast a high-level spell, we just decided, all right, now one of your fingers is like a crab leg and now one of your eyes has kind of, like, changed colour or whatever until he was slowly <laughs> turning into this monster. Um, um, but I think you're also going to have a fair bit of of player buy-in as well in terms of like, yes, you can mess with my character sheet or yes, you can change my character. Uh, Dale, is this like, have you played with these sort of mechanics in your games in terms of enforcing buffs and, and debuffs on players based on story elements? I mean, nothing that has ever looked exactly like this, but the thing I'm excited about with this is I love trying to come up with penalties that take the form of boosts, right? Like you get a buff, but really ultimately it's a bad thing. I love doing that where it's like, mechanically, this is good. Narratively, we all know it's terrible. Um, <laughs> no, I'm a, I'm a big fan of sort of carrot stick, yeah. but like with a lot of carrot. 
Um, you know, yeah. hand yeah. them a bunch of good stuff now, but make sure that they know that it's going to go bad at some point. So indulging too much is kind of the, the risk reward there. To bounce off of that, even an example, one of the mechanics that I love that we put in here is a lot of the mutations have a rule that if you're level four contamination or higher, the mutation changes. So an example would be one of the mutations that I mentioned earlier, you grow gills and you have you can now breathe underwater and you have a swimming speed. But if you are level four contamination or late or more, you can now only breathe underwater. So <gasps> it kind of represents that as you start to get contaminated, you might be like, oh, look at all these cool powers I'm this gaining. Sick. But yeah, and then like as it gets worse and worse, you're like, I'm I'm turning into a fish. This isn't good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it slowly gets worse and worse. But, you know, there's been times in the game where you get one or two mutations and you're like, maybe I can just ride along with this for a while. And that was the other mm -hmm. key is we want players not to get one level of contamination and go, oh, no, time to backtrack out of Drakenheim. It's, oh, this might be useful. Maybe I can push forward. And we want to like play with that idea of tempting them to maybe stick around <laughs> with their contamination until suddenly they're at contamination level five, realizing they're an inch away from turning into a horrible monster. And, and that's it, isn't it? It's temptation. I feel like temptation to me is the key to any design that wants to um, eventually do something horrible to a player character, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because because it's, it's nasty, it's horrible, it's bad. So you have to tempt the players into making that choice themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, it, yeah. it has to have been on them, not on you. Because if you just say to your player, well, now you're a fish without any warning, that's terrible yeah. and you're, you, you're gonna probably make them upset. But if they if they know that this is bad, it's got a name like contamination. If they know it's bad, but they get tempted along that that line, they keep following it, they keep going, then that's on them. That's their choice. And that, yeah. that's what makes it so juicy and good. And where we built on that was we developed, uh, it was one of our stretch goals, uh, contaminated spells. So oh. there's, uh, there, there's spells in the book that if you cast them, you gain a contamination level. And they are all spells that are are basically a contaminated version of a spell in the core rules uh, that is turned up to 11 because of the contaminated effects. So one of our favorite is uh, Conjure the Deep Haze, which is cloud kill, but the victims are also contaminated by the cloud kill. Uh, it's a monstrously effective spell, but you as the caster also become contaminated in the process. So we wanted to make sure that there was an active thing that said, hey, here's something that's really, really, really powerful, <laughs> but you gotta get, you gotta take, you gotta take the hit. Speaking of the the layers, you know, that we were talking about before, I also wanted to talk about, because it seems to be one of the other major aspects of, of Drakenheim, and I think a major aspect to a lot of really successful urban campaigns, which Drakenheim, is it an urban campaign? Is it a wilderness adventure? It's kind of a bit of both, right? Like, it's a it's a urban environment that got turned into a wilderness when the, the media yeah. shower fell upon it. Um, but it's the, the factions, um, the, the faction rivalry, which are described in the book as, like, the way for the dungeon master to think about them is as NPCs that are made up of a host of of you know individuals trying to do any you know many different things at, at any different time i think that's a very clever way to describe it though because it it makes it feel not so overwhelming 
and just think of it like, oh, okay, there are like five people here that all want different things and are trying to make up their mind about different things rather than mm. like, oh, I've got like armies of different NPCs that I have to, to cultivate. Um, what's your approach, I suppose, to faction, you know, elaborating on that, to, to factionalism within games of D&D and how, how to run it as a game master, how to keep it easy and, mm. and um, engaging for the players as well? I think for me, having run run the factions, um, is there's we looked at we we've been inspired by so many systems that do use factions in a very active way. Um, one of the biggest inspirations for me in Drakenheim, and this is kind of like the secret that I think some people don't actually catch on to, is Fallout New Vegas is mm. one of, is is a huge influence on Drakenheim because if you replace meteor shower with nuclear bombs <laughs> um you get the same thing it's just in the future um so so really in a, in a lot of ways the the fallout universe was a huge like fantasizing fallout was a huge part of that because you know you have nuclear mutants and ghouls and ruined cities and factions fighting over it and for me the biggest thing in drakenheim that sets it differently from i think other faction-based things is there's a tendency in a lot of faction-based um, media to that underscores an idea called unite the factions, where the goal is let's get past all of our differences and work together to achieve against a common enemy. Mm. In Drakenheim, it's a bit of a fake out because the factions all want very different things. And they fundamentally will not agree on anything. Mm. Um, and so much like in, in Fallout, um, in Fallout New Vegas, there is no way to make the NCR and Caesar's Legion work together. It just won't happen. Um, and so there are several factions in Drakenheim that you could see them working together on a short term basis, but they have fundamentally different goals. And so that for us, uh, um, rather than taking a video game logic of having like all these extra mechanics on top of the factions, we treated the factions like NPCs, gave them ideals, bonds, flaws, personality traits, and then gave them goals. And, and we spell out in the book, this is what it is. These are what the factions want. Role play them like an NPC and then use your judgment as a dungeon master to respond. So we tried to give a toolbox of ways to use the factions rather than building a building out what I would call a subsystem. It's more learn about them, learn about how they are. Because when I ran the original campaign, I didn't use uh, uh, like special rules for running factions. Mm. I just knew who they were and made decisions based on the actions of the player characters. And so mm. for me, it was much more organic than that. And that's the, the key thing with it. Mm. Dale, have you run a lot of factional conflict in your campaigns before? Um, I have prepared a lot of factional conflict that my players have deftly dodged away from. <laughs> um, so, you know, I have lots of documents full of information about factions that somehow have never been useful. But <laughs> I hope one day One day they'll happen. get there. The, yeah. the thing that I enjoy about running factionalized campaigns is that when you run the same campaign twice, 
it'll never turn out the same. And it's because you might have, you know, multiple factions that are moralizing along different lines. You know, you might have multiple, to use the alignments as descriptive rather than prescriptive, but good factions um, who ultimately want altruistic things, but it might be the way that they go about it is different or they might be, you know, the specific end that they want might be Mm -hmm. different. And so when you get different players playing with those factions, they, you know, every person has a different vibe about what uh, what they think is right and wrong. And, and so you always get a different result whenever you're playing mm-hmm. in a campaign that has multiple different factions pulling in different directions. Uh, one of my favorite things about the factions that we created when we were designing them, and I actually think this is well represented on our show, is no matter what faction the party aligns themselves with they're going to find out that there are some dark secrets within that faction Mm. so what i think is interesting is in our show we allied very heavily with the amethyst academy which is the sort of wizards uh spellcaster organization and there's a lot of people who are like i don't trust the amethyst academy they're not the good guys you should have gone with so and so uh a lot of people like we ended up turning on uh to name the five factions we have the amethyst academy which is the the sort of magical mages who want uh to gain access back to their their base of operations that was lost in drakenheim we have the um silver order who is a group of paladins who has come to Drakenheim in hopes of cleansing the city of this horrible contamination. We have the um, Falling Fire, which is a new religious sect who has uh, decided to worship the uh, Delirium Crystals and the Meteor, and they see it as a um, heaven-sent, I guess... Uh, prophecy that they're that they're now bringing people to in hopes of fulfilling this uh, this great future that they see. Um, we have the hooded lanterns, which is sort of the military uh, the military group who's fighting to reclaim the throne of Drakenheim. And then we have the Queen of Thieves, who has organized all the bandits around Drakenheim and is kind of just hoping to mess things up and has some ulterior motives. But I want to leave that for if you end up joining the Queen of Thieves. But uh, <laughs> what was really great is like we joined the Amethyst Academy and ended up making an alliance with the Hooded Lanterns. And... Um, Through that, you got to really get to know those two factions, but we ended up making enemies of the Silver Order and the Queen, the Queen's Men. And you were allied with the Silver Order for half the campaign, and then you turned on them. (laughs) Don't don't sugarcoat it. You turned on them in a Uh, brutal betrayal. Okay, that's fair. Um, It was horrible. We murdered their leader in cold blood. Um, But. A lot of people are like, you should have stayed with the Silver Order. And I'm sure that if you join the Silver Order at the outside of the campaign, you're going to question the whole time, like, should we have joined one of the other factions? And that's what's really important about the Drakenheim campaign. And actually a message to DMs hoping to run it is believe in every faction equally as a DM, but also Mm. be well aware to play up their flaws and their inability to see things from the other people's perspective. And what you're going to get is a difficult choice that no matter what faction they ally with, the players are going to have to choose. Well, if they're allying with one, they're making an enemy of another. And the one that they're allied with might have some great answers, but Mm -hmm. not all of them. 
Mm-hmm. And no matter what, you're going to leave mysteries unsolved because you can't ally with every faction. One of the things that's very funny is, you know, when we started the campaign several years ago, oftentimes people would ask questions of like, why can't all the factions work together? I mean, there's such a horrible danger that threatens the entire world. And why aren't why isn't everyone working together? No one seems to ask that question anymore. <laughs> uh, Where have we seen that recently? Oh. Um, and, and, and so I, I think for, for me, the, that's kind of the, um, the, the, the fun thing about, about it is, is that, you know, the, and it's a joke that comes up several times of, of like, we often see like, why, why, why isn't this faction acting rationally? Why, you know, why won't they listen to reason and logic? And we, I wrote that in the book of saying like, the factions are made of people and people mm-hmm. don't always act in logical ways. Um, they let they let their emotions and their beliefs and their opinions um, and and all, sometimes two sets of people can have all the same facts on the table and ultimately conclude two very different things. And I wanted to explore that with with this whole, in in a fantasy you know extrapolated to a fantasy so we can get away from the real world. Yeah. <laughs> but but <laughs> but 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 that idea of you know what does it mean to work together and what does it mean to actually have fundamental disagreements over uh, over over things and how do we and how do you navigate that because ultimately the 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 players then get to decide during the campaign who are, inevitably you, they, the players might not want to make enemies, but they mm. will mm. by, by virtue of their choices. And then they'll have to decide what does that mean for them? And what does that mean for how they're going to make the next decision? That makes me think of uh, what's that line from men in black where, where he says, no, a person is smart, but people yeah. are dumb, <laughs> panicky animals. I think about that line yeah. a lot, actually. It's a good line. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Dungeons of Drakenheim uh, was a Kickstarter last year. It should be arriving mid-2022 if you backed it, um, and it will be available for sale. I suddenly feel like Colbert or something. I'm like, check out the... Let's catch my <laughs> ring light in the thing. Check out Dungeons of Drakenheim coming in <laughs> mid-2022. Uh, it will be for sale if you missed the Kickstarter um, through the Ghostfire Gaming Store, uh, and I know I'm definitely looking forward to it. Well, speaking of is a phrase that I say a lot. And speaking of speaking of things, uh, I wanted to, because we talked a little bit about Drakenheim's um, origins, if you will, uh, as an idea that was scratching around the back of your brain, Monty. I guess I wanted to have a quick discussion about the approach to world building, which is a huge discussion and more mm. than we necessarily have time for here. But I, I guess what I would like to start with is like, where do you start? If you're a, a game master and not all game masters have this need to create their own thing, um, it's perfectly fine to run, Can't you know, <laughs> me neither for the record. Uh, you know, it's perfectly fine to use things like, you know, a, a pre-written adventure, something like Dungeons of Drakenheim, um, you know, either way that you go. But if you are a game master or you're getting into the hobby and you're like, I really want to create my own thing, I really want to have my own world, I guess, like, what are the starting points? Where where should you begin? Dale? I don't know whether this is going to be like a helpful answer in <laughs> any way, but I'm going to say it uh, regardless. I think you start with whatever is exciting to you, right? Because I don't think I've ever started world building from the same place twice. Sure. It's always just like, 
what was what was the little spark of an idea that made you excited about it? Start from there and build outwards. Um, which I mean, it's it's very it's it's not concrete at all. But you know, it's. If, if that is a place, if you're like, what if there was a city that was on the edge of a volcano, but instead of lava, it's, um, you know, magic um, or, or negative energy. I don't know. This is <laughs> this is an idea that I, you can tell is just coming out of my head right at this second. Um, but, you know, start with that. Build the city. What's in the city? Who's in the city? Um, and from there, you can start doing more concrete things. Like you can start the, the place that I like to start when I'm building factions or building a city or anything like that is... <laughs> This is, where, okay, when I was in high school ancient history class, they wanted us to remember um, the several different important aspects of a society that they wanted us to talk about um, in, in an essay. They were like, don't forget to mention all of these five things. And to make us remember it, they gave us an acronym. And what better way to make teenagers remember an acronym than for it to be a little bit crude? So the acronym was SPERM, uh, which stood for Social, Political, Economic, Religious, and Military. I don't think it's that rude, but when I mentioned it on my channel, some people were very deeply offended. So my yeah, apologies that, if any of those people are listening now. But um, <laughs> yeah, anyway, sp SPERM, Social, Political, Economic, Religious, and Military, and it's something that I've remembered ever since then. Um, and that I think is really useful for world building because you can look at a city and you go, okay, well, I need something that represents the religious faction. I need something that represents the economy. What What is the economy of this town? And you can do sure. sort of a, a mini version of that when you're building factions as well. Who's who's the, the social center of this faction? Who's the, the sort of military head of this faction? And, and you know, e even if your faction is a church, there's going to be um, some twist on those things that you can add in there. It just, it just helps it to feel full fairly quickly. So there's my very uh, flimsy, not good advice about where to start, and then some some slightly more concrete advice on how to <laughs> how to start. No, I think that I mean I think any advice that we give, right, uh, as James often says, is right for you, the game master, whoever you are at the time that you're creating something. So I think that's actually really good advice because the way that you create, the way that I create, the way that Kelly and Monty create, is going to be different to the to the way that another game master might might start but it's yeah, good to 100%. have you know a, a palette of different ideas on how to get started so that you can choose what works for you uh kelly yeah, do you like sorry go ahead Dad. oh sorry i was just gonna say it's like if if you were excited about the monsters if the first thing you do is yeah. flip to the back and look at the monsters then maybe that's where your world building building begins mm. what kind of monsters are in this place if you're excited about the character classes that are available start there build outwards you know it's it's Literally follow the rabbit of happiness. <laughs> follow the ha rabbit of happiness. We should, <laughs> we should, we should get that on a bumper sticker or something. <laughs> um, Kelly, do you mu do much game mastering yourself or do much designing I yourself? I do. Um, I, I do run my own home game. I, I've ran a few uh, things on our stream as well. Okay. Um, I, I generally, the, the reason for the divide is mostly um, Monty has a preference of being a DM and I actually have a preference of being a player, uh, but we both love the other side of it as well. Uh, just like a little bit less than the other one, but um, I do love running games. I have created many, many worlds as well. So I, I definitely do have a creative mind. Uh, I contributed a lot to some of the locations in Drakenheim that were added in the book. Um, I got to come to Monty with all of my cool ideas and we kind of hashed those in and filled the world out a bit more with those as well. Mm. Does, does that mean that when you're running the stream, you're like, oh, I came up with this. This is awesome. When Monty pulls um, it out of his hat. 
we we actually we had a terrible moment the other day where one of my favorite monsters that I created nearly <laughs> killed one of our player characters Ooh. and I watched it happen and I was just like man why did we make this thing so scary and I'm just sitting there like I'm what the one who pitched this wrote? idea to Monty yeah I came to Monty the one day I'm like what if we had a mix of a banshee and a ghost but when it possesses you it contaminates and mutates you and we're like yeah and then it was it was awful and I love it, but as a player, I was like, man, those things are scary, but it's fun to see. And I also do have to like tug on my acting chops. Uh, even we've had, we had a big revelation in the last episode. <laughs> and when the revelation happened, I was like in character, I was like, oh my God, how is this happening? And then after the stream, Jill and Joe, who we play with turned to me and they were like, what and i'm like oh right you guys didn't actually know what was happening and it was such like i forgot that monty and i knew but the other two players didn't sure and that is a weird separation as a as a player but i i've gotten really good at when i'm a player i don't worry about what i know i worry about what my character's up to um because i read so much D that like when we have a troll in front of us i'm not like oh hit it with fire i'm like would my character know to hit it with fire or is that something that we need to discover or like you know that's kind of a bad example because i think i always yell out hit it with fire but um <laughs> that kind of idea of like just trying to separate what i know and having fun being a character mm. I feel like that's a, a bad luck Brian meme is like create really cool monster. DM uses it against me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Monty, what about you? Where do you start from? So for me, I often start with my influences. Um, and I, you know, I, I got into the, in, into tabletop games through a huge pat, like through loving history and uh, loving uh, playing lots of Warhammer fantasy and loving video games, but also a lot of reading. And I think mm. one of the things that I like to remind Dungeon Masters is part of being a creative and creating things is also making sure that you are fueling the engine of your of your creativity with good mm. fuel. And that means reading books. I think that too often um, video games, movies, and TV shows get to be the dominant forms of influences because of the, their influence on gaming. But novels are so much like like if you read more as a dungeon master, it's the equivalent of like going on a bodybuilder's diet for um for for creating. Like I, I would say that like video games and movies and TV shows are great, but they kind of are the fast food of inspiration because in many cases a lot of video games are just rehashing influences that came from books so mm. i like to go to the source and when i am creating i like to read more um even in the process of making drakenheim in the original stream i was reading nk jemison and i was reading ursula k Le Guin, and i was reading hp lovecraft and so i was swimming in all of that literature and i think that that w when you are in getting inspired by other material it just bleeds into the creative process. And eventually you kind of, it's like you fill your brain, like you fill your be belly and you can't help but word vomit. And eventually there'll be nuggets of beautiful things in that word vomit that you can hammer into a campaign. <laughs> 
I think that's really, really solid advice because I'm. I mentioned before we started streaming. I've started running an office Grim Hollow campaign, and. It's probably because I haven't started from scratch with a campaign for a very long time. A lot of the time when I'm running games, I'm running stuff that I've already run before, you know, seven or eight times over. Uh, But starting from scratch has been an interesting experience where I'm like, all right, Mm. so I've got a big city. Uh, It's got a tavern in it uh, and a black, you know, and it's kind of like slowly... Uh, forming the ideas and I think that uh, I think you're right maybe engaging with some reading um, would help kind of motivate that a little bit more help kind of like fill up the tank yeah. a little bit more that feels like it's a bit empty on new ideas at the moment from from years of creating D&D campaigns yeah um, and, and, and I would say that like you could also turn to history um, sure. and I think podcasts and audiobooks are also like S tier <laughs> if I would like it, it, not everyone can like has the focus or the time to read. So like, sure. if you have a commute and you normally listen to music, listen to an audiobook or listen to like a good history podcast or or you know consume something that will give you that kind of energy in there. Mm. Um, because because I I think that when you have because uh, ultimately you know if you're a, just a little bit more well read than your players you can kind of borrow <laughs> stuff wholesale and they're not going to notice. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think sure. Um, what what is really important about reading is specifically is that us as DMs, uh, it's it's a verbal medium that we're, we're delivering to our players. We have to use words to paint pictures. So while movies and video games and all of that are, are great for inspiration, um, actually reading gives you new ways of describing things, new ways of exploring the language, the, the, the art of language to create. And when you, when you as a DM have read more and have this encyclopedia of ways to describe a creepy house, Mm -hmm. because you've read a thousand stories of creepy houses, you now don't just have to be like, you walk into a creepy house. You're going to have more evocative ways to tell those stories because of all the consuming you did of, of language. Very solid advice there. Um, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I have nothing to add. But we are going to uh, bring it to a close there. That is all we have time for today on this episode of the Eldritch Lawcast. Monty and Kelly, you collectively are the Dungeon Dudes. If people want to learn more about Drakenheim uh, or watch some of your campaign, where, where can they find you? You can find us uh, on YouTube at uh, youtube.com slash Dungeon Dudes. And you can also punch in drakenheim.com and that'll take you to the Ghostfire store uh, if you want to pre-order the actual books and all this this good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing I did want to quickly show, because we have versions of the, the Kickstarter kind of collector's edition. Um, now, this is just empty. This is not a, a, an actual edition of the book because these are still, like I said, alphas. But when I saw this, I was like, that's got to make the two of you happy. Like, that's pretty. It's cool. <laughs> that's it's pretty so cool. cool. Um, awesome. Uh, if you want to keep the conversation going with the Dungeon Dudes, with myself, with Dale, uh, we have our Twitter handles just below our names. You can also email podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. Ask us a question. Start a conversation. Get us talking. And in the meanwhile, just like the contamination of Drakenheim, go out and spread the word of the Eldritch Lawcast. Tell it to all your D&D uh, and tabletop role-playing game friends because we are here every just week. Just like it. 
It's just, just like the contamination. You might get some mutations <laughs> as well. Who knows? Uh, Go tell your friends about the Eldritch Lawcast. Become a fish. Yeah, yeah that, that's our new slogan, exactly. <laughs> we will catch you all next week. <laughs>